I was trying to remember when we first met. And I, I, I'm sure you've got the year down, but I don't know if you remember the actual occasion because I do not. I do not either. Uh, I remember um, when I was here as a PhD student from 1993 to 1996 that I would bump into you from time to time. I remember bumping into you once in the bathroom, <laughs> um, but uh, I never took your class. I guess I knew who you were. Uh, I knew of you, but we were never close in those years. Well, I was thinking about what brought you to OU and your journey up to that point. So perhaps you could give a bit of an arc of your professional career, first as a journalist and then your transition to academe. Sure. I'll try to make it an arc, too, instead of a, a drawn-out uh, lost-in-space versus war and peace. <laughs> I knew I wanted to be a journalist when I was in junior high school. Uh, I delivered the Washington Star from 1968 to 1973, and I delivered it to the University of Maryland uh, student housing. So uh, this is quite an interesting time for the news media, the era of the moon landings and the, some of the civil rights movement, but also the investigation into an eventual resignation of Richard Nixon, Watergate, all of that. Ooh, and did I mention the Vietnam War? So um, exciting times. I would read the paper that I was delivering, uh, and I decided that uh, journalists led interesting lives. They got to meet interesting people and write about important things, and they also had an impact on the world. So I decided then that, that I wanted to be a journalist, and I, I kept with that a plan through high school and through college. I, I majored in journalism at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, and I served them as a reporter slash photographer, and then eventually as news editor. My first job out of college was as a reporter at the Springfield, Missouri Daily News, and that was in 1980. I was only with them for a year and a half, and part of the reason for that was, as much as I liked the work, I did not like working for the company that owned the Springfield, Missouri newspaper, which is Gannett, then as now. I have many friends who have gone through Gannett, many who are probably still with them. My take on Gannett is they were more interested in making money than in doing good journalism. And so our goals did not line up very well. So I left the Springfield uh, newspaper in the fall of 1981, and I went looking to make a change, not only in, in what paper I was working at, but also the kind of work I was doing. Because being a reporter means you get called out or had the potential to get called out all hours day and night and uh, I was newly married and interested in starting a family and I thought it would be smart for me to get more regular hours. So when I left Springfield uh, I ended up at the Fort Worth, Texas Star-Telegram which is a very good paper. It is a writer's paper. They have wonderful reporters who are given a lot of freedom by their editors and uh, they had just won a Pulitzer Prize for photography when I got there in the fall of 1981. So I was a copy editor. Copy editors tend to have uh, more regular hours. You come in, you edit your stories, you write your headlines, you write your captions, and unless there's some big story that just blows uh, out of nowhere, you go home at regular time. So I started off on the morning paper shift, which was 4 to 11, 
excuse me, 4 a.m., and then we would have our first deadline at 11, and I'd usually get home about 1 in the morning. Eventually, I ended up working for the afternoon paper, but on the morning shift, which is, you know, 4 in the morning till 11, your first deadline, and then 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you're done. And I liked it, and I was good at it. I won prizes as a headline writer, and I was there when we won our second Perlitzer, the big one, for meritorious public service in 1986. I was exposed at this time to some other possibilities for my, my, my lifetime career, if you will. And, and one of my friends was Larry Swindell, who was the books editor of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And on the side, he was an adjunct professor and taught at Tarrant County Junior College in TCU. And uh, he asked me to come along with him and as, he, as he was teaching a class at Tarrant County Junior College. I went with him a couple times, and then he asked me to teach a couple times, and when I did, I realized I was hooked. So what I discovered was I'm a good journalist, <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a damn good editor, but I, I know I was born to teach. I just knew it in that moment when I was teaching at Tarrant County Junior College. So then what to do? I'm working full-time, but I knew that if I was going to be a full-time professor with a good salary and, and job security, I would have to have a Ph.D., and um, I was able to get my master's there in Fort Worth at night. It took me three and a half years of driving regularly up to the University of North Texas in Denton. But after getting my master's degree in 1991, you know, I looked around and there was no PhD being taught within 220 miles of Fort Worth, which meant we had to move. So I had a conversation with Mike Strickland my undergraduate advisor uh, and one of my mentors from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. We had breakfast one day in Lincoln when I was visiting my parents there. And uh, I told him about my plans for a PhD and I asked him for recommendations. And he knew me, he knew what I'm like, and he thought, you know, I think you might be a good fit here as opposed to there. He asked me what I was interested in. I told him, well, ethics and history. And so that ruled out a lot of schools that are heavily quantitative but he thought that I might be a good fit with Ohio University. And frankly, I hadn't heard of it. Most people hear Ohio University and they think Ohio State University, which is a horrible insult. <laughs> and the two sides of that argument would, would, would point at the other side and say, oh, I've insulted you with social media with that group. I applied to Ohio University and I was <laughs> awakened one afternoon by uh, Pat Washburn, the graduate director here. And uh, I say awakened because I suffered a back injury and I was on some very, very good painkillers. And he called me up when I was, pardon my French, high as a kite, lying in bed. And he said, I see your application. We think you're just a great fit. We'd love to have you come visit. And at the end of about 90 minutes of him telling me how wonderful Ohio University is, me in my highly medicated state, I said, yes, Pat, I will visit. Got a plane ticket and came up and visited in January of 1992. And uh, it was the magical time. For, for starters, Southeast Ohio was just plain beautiful. Rolling hills, hardwood trees, some charm to this old city, old by American standards, 200-year-old city that you didn't get in, in Texas, which where I was from, it was pretty flat and it was pretty dry and it was pretty hot and it was pretty dull. So I was charmed by the place and then I was charmed by the people of Ohio University. I got to visit with 
a lot of the professors. And I don't think you and I connected at that time, Bob, but I remember meeting uh, Mickey Boucher, and I remember meeting Drew Riley Everts and Tom Peters, well, a couple others, Ralph Izzard. Pat did something smart, and he had me meet with the graduate students, too. And one of them sort of said, you know, you want to go out and hang out tonight? Uh, I said, and do what? He said, well, there's a basketball game, and then we can go to O'Hooley's, <laughs> which was uh, the grad student bar. And so we went to a basketball game. I watched the Bobcats beat one of the Michigans, Eastern, Western, Central, I can't remember, and then went to this really cool, funky bar uptown, and I was just charmed. And I said, boy, I've got to come here. No other school has, has paid attention to me or listened to me or seemed like they really wanted me to come the way Ohio has. I'd applied at some other places, but I knew this was it. I had to wait, however, until the fall of 1993 to come here for a couple of reasons. One was I had to get over this back injury, and another was I had to sell my house. Got those done and uh, came here in the summer of 1993 and lived in the Mill Street apartment complex for three years, the three most challenging and wonderful years of my life. And uh, after I had my, my PhD in hand, uh, I went up to become a full-time professor at last in the fall of 1996, and that was at Utah State University, which was a very good place for me to start because they were very supportive of me and my research agenda, and that means that they gave me time and they, they gave me money to go do research and, you know, plane tickets and archives and all of that, go to conferences. So I was there with them for 13 years. I rose to the rank of full professor and was head of the department by the time I left. I arrived in Athens on 4th of July, 2009, and started my job here as a full professor. I was so glad to come back. It had been my dream always to teach at Ohio University. But you know, it's very, very rare for someone to teach at a school where they got their PhD, at least to teach immediately there. Uh, because schools want their students to go out and experience the rest of the world, go enrich the rest of the world with what you've learned here at Ohio University. Well, I did that. I taught the Mormons for 13 years. <laughs> I was so ready to come back. Not that I have nothing against Mormons, I love them. They're like any other group of people. You know, they're good, bad, ugly, wonderful, and many of them are saints <laughs> uh, in more ways than one. <laughs> but Ohio was calling me back, and I had to come. I've been teaching at Ohio since then. I started off teaching editing and beginning news writing and the history of American journalism. And I can teach anything related to how to report, write, or edit the news for print, and to a degree, same skills with online. But you know, Bob, the pace of technological change has become so great that the people who teach editing and news writing now um, they need to have a much broader palette of skills than I came with. They need to be on good terms with all sorts of emerging apps and emerging hardware. And at 62, <laughs> I kind of feel like, you know, um, my best years of teaching are nearing an end because I, I just can't keep up with all the technology. It's a young person's game now. So what I teach now, magazine feature writing, historiography, how to do history, and ethics. I think many of the principles of those three classes are, are unchanging or eternal, so I'm still good with those. 
But I'm glad that we have 28-year-old PhDs <laughs> teaching our undergraduates how to do beginning reporting now. I still do my, my teaching, and I still do my research, and to a degree, my service. And even though it's COVID time and we're all cooped up during this time of isolation, I still enjoy my teaching and my research. I still made the right choice. I still am certain that I was born to be a professor. I'm going to ask you to take this moment to do a little teaching for uh, the listeners. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a very specific historical technology question and, and let you wrestle with it just a little bit the way you might, you know, in a classroom. And that is, uh, you mentioned uh, technology changing at a rapid pace. And when we think about when you started your PhD in 93, yes, the internet was out there, but the World Wide Web had not yet unfolded its glorious self. But during the time that you were a doctoral student, it did happen. Sitting where we are sitting now, looking back on that time period, how, how would you compare that type of access to the internet for the common person to, say, Gutenberg's printing press? We, first of all, can't overstate the impact of what Gutenberg invented in the 1450s in, uh, in Germany with movable type. Before Gutenberg came along, if you wanted a book, first of all, you had to be rich, and you wouldn't be able to go out probably and just buy it. You'd probably commission someone to write it for you, and so you'd have some monk write it out in longhand. And therefore, if, if people creating books are doing so you know, in this laborious pen and ink technique, uh, there aren't any books, okay? We are, it's a pre-literate society. The people who could read and had books were the elites, you know, the rich and the people in power. And so what Gutenberg did was with, and then furthermore, people who came along and improved upon his printed books by making them smaller, cheaper, accessible, easy to carry around with you, you know, put, you can put them in your pocket. Multiple copies of, of books, the basics of economics come into play. If you can churn out a large number of books or magazines or newspapers, then they're going to be cheaper to make. Each one is essentially uh, cheaper in cost than the one before. Once you've got your pen and paper or your ink and paper, that's a major purchase, but it doesn't really cost anything to roll them through the printing press. With virtually everyone getting access to printed materials, it brought everyone into the public sphere. It made the discussions about all things political democratic. Everyone had a voice, for good or for ill. And the example I give in my history class is the Reformation. So Martin Luther changes the Christian church. He splits it in two in just a few decades after Gutenberg creates his printing press. And I don't think that's a random fact. I think that a major change, like the creation of the Protestant church, could only occur if it was possible for Luther to get his message into a lot of people's hands, and not just the elites, but the common people. And he did. For the rich, he would write uh, and publish logical, rational arguments about what the Catholic church was doing wrong, and, and he would do this in Latin. And for the common people who could read, he would make the same arguments, but he did it in their lingua franca, German. And of course, there are a lot of people out there who couldn't read. And so he had cartoons made, you know, woodcuts that could be reproduced over and over again. I remember one of them I shared with class, the Pope was portrayed as a, as a demon. And in another one, he was farting, F-A-R-T-I-N-G. What a wonderful word. 
And I guess the whole idea that Luther was trying to put across to these illiterates was, hey, if the Pope farts, he's human. <laughs> he's, he's not infallible. He's not perfect. He's not an angel. He's like us. He eats, he drinks, he sleeps, and he farts. Farting is the original sin. <laughs> <laughs> well, farting in church probably was. <laughs> now, having said that, these changes did not happen overnight. It takes time for these documents to be published and to be shared, and the documents had to physically be carried from place to place. And so, yeah, Luther could create a revolution, but it took months. It took years. Compare that to today, where most people have internet access. You know, some may not have computers in their homes, but I count the phone as a computer because it is. Almost everyone has a mobile phone. Everyone not only has access to these computers, but everyone now can be a publisher. With your computer or your phone, you can blog and people can read you. You can respond to stories that you see by adding your comments at the bottom. You can click that you like something on Facebook, etc. And with everyone being able to react to everyone else in the blink of an eye and everyone being able to publish, the world has become so democratic in its access to speech that the speech has become much more chaotic. It is as if everyone were in a room shouting as opposed to the days of Gutenberg and Martin Luther, where everyone had the same, essentially, text to talk about. Here's your Bible, and here's Martin Luther's commentaries on it. Okay, great. Let's make this the topic of discussion, and we'll talk about it for the next few months. In the age of the Internet, we have put the world of knowledge and the world of confusion, error, misinformation at everyone's fingertips and everyone can react to the truth and to the lies in damn near real time. It's almost as if we're having a global face-to-face -face conversation, except some people want to shout and some people want to disrupt the conversation. And so the, the issue that the people who are teaching journalism today are facing, God bless them, is how do we get ordinary people out there to trust that the journalists are doing their best to bring them an unbiased, factual account, or at least an accurate account, um, of what's happening. And why should they listen to journalists telling them, you know, here's what you should know, uh, when everyone who has access to the World Wide Web can say for themselves, well, here's what I think I should know. We have lost mediation to a large degree in this modern world of computerized, instant, digital communication. Mediation is someone who says, here's what I think you should read. Here's what I think is important. Here's what I think you should ignore. And I think the loss of, uh, of such mediation is the dark side of the web. And we saw that in the January 6th attempt to take over the Capitol in an act of sedition. The flip side of that is everyone has whatever information they want at their fingertips almost instantly. I can't tell you how easy and <laughs> easy, how much uh, quicker and easier it is for me to do historical research now than it was when I was getting my PhD in the 90s. I came in at the very beginning of the digital age, the very end of the index card bank in the library as, as the way you found books and magazines. The kind of stuff that I can do in, in you know, a week now with 
my access to the full text of newspapers, American, French, English, whatever, from today all the way back to 1690, I can find it with a few keystrokes. I still have to make sense of it, <laughs> but uh, you know, in, in the early 90s when I was here getting my PhD, I would have had to try to figure out what it was I wanted to know about a, a, a particular issue in the past, which newspaper or magazine was most likely to cover that issue, and then try to find whether that particular publication exists in microfilm, and then try to figure out whether I, if, if it, I could find that information by spooling that microfilm around and around and around. It took hours, sometimes weeks. But now, it's like I'm living in some imaginary age <laughs> where anything is possible, good or bad. I have what I want or what I need or what, uh, or what someone else thinks I should want or need in a matter of seconds. It's a brave new world in the, in the Aldous Huxley sense, in that we have been given the opportunity to speak and to have our voices heard and to, and to impact ongoing political and economic and social movements immediately, but sometimes not always for the best. So uh, that's the change I, I think we've looked at in just 28 years. Let's do something fun as the next little conversation topic. Being in an office near your office, I often would hear the strains of Joni Mitchell coming from your computer, I think it was. What draws you to Joni Mitchell? What are some of the things about Joni's songwriting and performing that strikes deep within you? I think Joni Mitchell is the greatest poet of the English language alive. And that means she's better than Dylan. Dylan's good, but Dylan can sometimes just go, you know, off the wall and be unintelligible. Joni Mitchell is accessible to everyone. And she writes, she writes with words the way that painters paint with colors. And Joni Mitchell started off as an artist. That was her major before she became a songwriter. So what I like about her is she can talk about huge, magnificent, important things, whether they're aspects of our lives or changes in society, and they, she can do it with just a simple turn of a phrase. And I'm astounded at how much information she can pack into just a few words and have that phrase have an emotional impact. It's funny you should ask me this, Bob, because in teaching online, it's a little awkward. As the teacher signs in five minutes before class, and then, you know, one by one, the students sign on to Zoom. They start to, to see you, and you start to see them. But you can't start class because you want to wait for everyone to sign in. So I fill that awkward silence by playing music, and I try to suit it for the day. But uh, for magazine feature writing class yesterday, I started the warm-up time by playing Joni Mitchell from her album Court and Spark. And the first song I played was, I think, Help Me. And I had a student say, this is my favorite Joni Mitchell song in the chat room. And I went, whoa, I didn't know students listened to cool singer-songwriters from my age. I mean, Joni Mitchell started her first, she wrote her first songs like in the early 60s. That particular lesson day in my magazine feature writing class, we were talking about concrete versus abstract description and how finding the right phrase can have the viewer have an emotional reaction, a very powerful one, as opposed to just giving the emotion you want the reader to feel. And, you know, it was a very sad day. You know, don't say that. Show me it was a sad day. I said in class, I want to play a little clip for you and then let's talk about it. And I played 
what was it? I could sing it for you. <laughs> Come in from the cold, from Night Ride Home. Afterwards, I said, just listen to what she said. Back in 1957, we had to dance a foot apart, and they hawkeyed us from the sidelines, holding their rulers without a heart. When just one touch of our fingertips could make our circuitry explode, all I ever wanted was to come in from the cold. And I said, let's pick that apart. Wow, they hawkeyed us from the sideline. What an amazing verb. And so we talk about how if you pick just the right verb, it can save you, you know, so much dis- gassy, airy, descriptive time that you don't need. They hawkeyed us from the sidelines. And then we, we had to dance a foot apart. And these, I assume they're nuns. They're nuns. I see them in my mind's eye around the gym, you know, scrutinizing the couples. And they're thinking, that woman is six inches too close, you know, and whacking that woman (laughs) and her boy with their ruler. But then I said to class, do you remember that first moment, you know, when you had deep feelings for someone else and the whole idea of just holding that person's hand was enough just to blow your mind? I mean, I'm 62 now. (laughs) I'm a little far from that first sensation, but I remember it, and you've got to remember it, too. What was like the first time that you kissed someone? Joni Mitchell says it in just a few words. It made your circuitry explode. All the ways she could have said that, or some other writer could have said that. Well, uh, it made me feel really good. (laughs) Kind of excited. A little afraid. (laughs) She just says the whole brain went kaboom, (laughs) which is what happens. When love has got you. So I think of her as a poet, as more than a singer-songwriter, because there are so many uh, acts out there, so many musicians, that they have one great song. You know, oh my God, that's a great song. You know, Zegar and Evans, in the year 2525, they had one song. Joni Mitchell <laughs> has hundreds that are great. Neil Young is in the same boat, you know. He, he can't write a bad song. I think I think uh, David Crosby said, yeah, you know, Neil, Neil Young has written 400 songs, and they're all good. One day, Neil Young was sick and in bed with the flu or something, or cold. And in bed, in one afternoon, he wrote Cinnamon Girl, Down by the River, and um, oh, one other, uh, Old Man. I'm not sure that's the right one. But, you know, there are some people to whom all of this stuff that I talk about with my students Word choice, dialogue, pacing. A lot of people have to study that to get it right. It seems like Joni Mitchell had it come right out of the box. I mean, she wrote Clouds at 23. You know, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, which is a very deep and extended metaphor for life and love at 23, you know. So, yes, I <laughs> I am a Joni Mitchell fan. And, and now that she's, I guess, 80 years old and, and frail, you know, was found in a coma, um, a couple of years ago, uh, it's going to be a, a, a huge blow to me when, when she finally passes because she is such a monumental person. She's, she's almost, you know, Mozart-like in, in her talent. Uh, and I, I look at Mozart as you know, not so much a musician as, as an ambassador from God, you know. And, uh, and what's the message from the ambassador? You know, I exist. <laughs> because no human could do what I've just done. (laughs) That's Joni Mitchell for me.